This is the Lion's Edge presented by BetMGM. We're doing college football today. I went back and looked the first time since January 10th. That was our Bama-Georgia preview almost five months ago. After last week's NFL reset, we're doing a college football reset today in the form of 10 questions, five questions a piece, resetting the college football table with not necessarily some of the biggest storylines entering the summer, but more so things that at least in my case, that I might not have paid close enough attention to that I want to give more attention to. And then we'll do this ahead of our conference-by-conference preview series uh, with betting, team breakdowns, and more. We are recording this about 9.30 Eastern on Thursday morning. Trading just pinged everybody maybe an hour ago that all win totals are up. Uh, So we might do some... Actually, let's do some reactionary stuff for that right now, and this is going to be super quick. You mentioned that there is one number, and it's only only P5, I think, think that are up right now uh with the exception of i don't think notre dame is in there yet uh what was the number that that jumped out to you this morning yeah emphasizing what you just said which is we we've had like less than an hour to look at these numbers and and really get into them at all i've had like 18 minutes but the one that jumped out to me right away was georgia and it jumped out to me the exact same way that lsu did when we had this conversation a year ago uh, or, you know, two years ago or whenever that was. It, it was, look, they're coming off of an astounding defensive performance. Like, in the conversation for one of those great defenses in the history of college football, they lose all those dudes. Obviously, it's Georgia. They have recruits behind them. Like, it's not like the, the cupboard is bare. But you're looking at 10 and a half. You got to play Oregon. You got to go to South Carolina early on, which I don't think is a gimme. Uh, it's That's a really high number to get to 11 and one after you watch that much talent walk out the door. I think for me, it would be closer to a no play if the prices were less janky. But you look at the Georgia price and the under is plus 165. Like that's that's nuts. So. I will definitely be taking a shot on Georgia after running all that talent out the door, going 10-2 and with a massive payout at plus 165. That's a no-brainer. I should have seen that coming because that's that's a classic Chase Kitty play. Like like you said, with the LSU stuff, um, I think it's a a little bit different because the LSU season felt so one-off. So much more exactly. It was when it was happening. I mean, we've been talking about Georgia having a season like they did last year for the last probably even going back to Mark Rick, like the last 20 years, like that that Matthew Stafford, Nick Chubb year, that was supposed to be that type of year. So we've been talking about that forever. I'm still surprised because of the schedule. I know you, you mentioned the Oregon game. I agree with you. The South Carolina game might be tricky, but you still don't get Bama, depending on, we'll get to Texas A&M a lot this summer. They still don't have Texas A&M on that schedule. I, I agree. There are a lot of games where it's like, hey, let's not overlook this. The South Carolina game, um, I mean, even going to Kentucky, getting Florida at home, I really like Billy Napier and I'll get to him with one of these questions. I don't know what to expect from Florida this year, but still getting, excuse me, not Florida at home, getting Florida in Jacksonville. There are a lot of games like that where I would be not giving them auto wins, but you also have so many auto wins on this schedule that i I'm not going to bet on Georgia losing two games when you have Samford and Kent State 
and Missouri and Vandy. I think Tennessee's an auto win. I think they win at Mississippi State. Georgia Tech just isn't there yet. There are too many games where they're easily going to get five, six, seven, eight auto wins, and that means not stumbling twice. Because as of right now, they should win all of these games. So you're telling me they're going to lose two games that they shouldn't? I get the price. I'm not going to pay it. At that 165, though, I mentioned this to you right before we hopped on, that Texas is at 8.5. Texas has Bama early in the season. I think it's week one or week two. That's an auto loss. I mean, talk about stumbling. You're saying they're not going to stumble three more times, and it's not even a stumble necessarily now that I think about it because I'm not sure they're better than all of these other three or four teams they could lose to on their schedule, and I'm getting that at plus 165 for them to even go 8-4. and four. If Texas goes 8-4 and four this season, that's a good season, right? We're sitting here after the season saying, hey, Stark, or Sark took a step forward this season, obviously. They go 8-4, and four, that's a good season, but that's still going to hit the under for me. It's a lot, and to your point, I'm, I'm still back on the Georgia stuff. To your point, the last five years in conference, 8-0, so, I 7-2, mean, 7-1, 7-1, 7-1. So, I mean, even when they're not national championship contenders, usually they're not losing multiple games in conference. Uh, I, I think it's because of the price. It's worth it. Your, your Texas thing, I have already, it's only June 2nd, I've already gone back and forth on the Texas stuff 17 times. I mean, it's, I see the, I see the argument for why they win the Big 12. I see the argument for why they continue to do Texas things and go 7-5 and five and then get ranked 19th in the 2023 preseason poll. So it's I, I, uh, I, I'm going to need several more weeks before I feel good about saying anything definitive about Texas. Well, I am going to take it because I feel obligated to take it. I, I don't feel comfortable going into the season rooting for Texas wins. Yeah, that's that's what this podcast does. We take unders on Texas win totals. You know what else we do on this podcast? We take unders on... This could go in a lot of directions. We were talking about Vanderbilt before. No, yeah. we are going to be talking about Nebraska. Oh, I cannot yeah. well, believe you couldn't. That's more of a you thing. Yeah, but why? I can't believe you couldn't finish my sentence. Nebraska under 7.5. I get plus odds at plus 105. You're telling me Nebraska is going to go 8. I don't even have their schedule pulled up. Nebraska's going to have the breakout season and go 8-4? Eight 8-4 and, four? Eight and four might get Scott Frost fired. I'm going to tell you right now, one of the most interesting stats to come out of last year was when you evaluate the, like, the luck factor and the negative variance that every team had. Nebraska's negative variance was like through the roof and, th- and that they actually should have had a better season. And when you go back and look through... Like the games that they played, they were kind of in every game. So I, I, I know you don't, and I enjoy your annual Nebraska, like, you know, just gearing up to say not nice things about them. And, and Scott Frost at a certain point, like it's not bad luck when you're this bad for this many years. Uh, so I understand all that, but I'm, I'm definitely not going to have the bloodlust for the Cornhuskers this year. This year. The schedule sets up for them. Now that I have it pulled up, they don't have Ohio State from cross division. They don't have Penn State. Uh, they don't have Michigan State. They go to Michigan. You still get Oklahoma at home. I mean, there are winnable games. That way, if Scott Frost doesn't go, I mean, we're going to do hot seat and Big Ten and all that kind of stuff. If Scott Frost doesn't go 8-4, and four, there's no reason he should be back next year against the schedule. I don't want to spend that much time on Nebraska because I'm going to be spending a lot of time on Nebraska uh, over the summer. Any other numbers pop out to you before we get to some questions here? Now, let's do questions. Uh, let's let's get into, uh, I'm interested to see what you cooked up. I know I've got some good stuff that I want to throw at you. 
True or false? So this is, we can assume that this is probably the final season of the current Big 12, correct? It seems like 2023 is that, that year for Texas, Oklahoma to depart, getting those four teams. True or false? This actually isn't for this year, but I don't care. In 2023 and beyond, top to bottom, the Big 12 is better without Texas and Oklahoma and with BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. Not more entertaining, not more interesting, flat out better. True or false? Could not agree more. All four, all four have been better, are better right now. They probably will be better in the future than Texas. I mean, we, we talked about is somebody going to replace Oklahoma quite a bit after that news dropped last year. Uh, the door is open for that for either a program to jump up or grab, kind of grab that annual playoff contender status or a few teams to cycle in and out of that top spot. I don't think that matters in this scenario. I think it's flat out better top to bottom. We can have the financial discussion and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of pure competition for for football and for men's basketball too, I'm sure we'll get to that next year. This conference just will be better without those two teams and adding those four teams. Yeah, probably not, not better as a more. softball conference, but uh, I would say better in most other sports. Uh, I mean, I let's go here because I have a similar question. Um, it's It's a little different, but it makes sense to ask it here rather than later, which is when I was going to ask it. Long term, I'm not talking this season. I'm not even talking like 2023 or whenever the first year is that Oklahoma and Texas leave, go to the SEC. Long term, over the next 10 years, 20 years, which of these conferences would you rather be? The Big 12, the American, or the Sun Belt? I, I think that's the correct response. But this is a real thing that some people talk about. Yeah, yeah. No, the death of the Big 12 and is it a power conference anymore? That's that's 100% a real thing. But I, I think your reaction is the correct one, is that's a silly question. It's an absurd question. I mean, we, we don't even need to get into the financial aspect of it, because even though the big, I mean, come, coming out of this last, let's say, decade of realignment, because it feels like we're entering a period where it might slow down a little bit. So it kind of feels like the last 10 years have been the major realignment coming out of this financially, the Big 12 isn't in an amazing spot because they're just going to fall farther and farther farther behind the SEC and the Big 10. That, that the is, thing they're losing is brand power. Brand power and financial aspects of it. I get all that. Competition-wise, no. You, you st- on, in football, you still have Oklahoma State. You still have Baylor. I mean, these programs might not jump up and replace an Oklahoma, but they're not... We don't even need to talk about this. I can't believe that's a real question. It's a real question in that it's people talking about it. And, I mean, we talk about the power of the marketplace. There you go. There's a television marketplace as well. I think that the the one place where it does kind of matter is is that, like, marketplace of ideas kind of thing. Because I, I thought the Big 12 championship was as interesting last year as it's been in a long time. But that's because I'm a fan of Big 12 football. You're a fan of Big 12 football. We know there are people that listen to this podcast that are Big 12 football fans. So it is, I think, it gets talked about and commodified a different way when it's Baylor, Oklahoma State, or when it's you know Iowa State in the mix versus the big, powerful, sexy brands of Oklahoma and Texas. And I, I mean, that's just, that's, that's just the challenge that the conference has to work through going forward. Number two. 28 teams changed coaches during uh, or after last season. That's basically a third, or excuse me, a fourth of all programs. Uh, of course, you've got coaching carousel questions. I could me. have had five coaching carousel yeah. questions. Chase, give me one team you believe made a mistake 
Give me one team you believe absolutely nailed it. Of course, this comes with the coaching change disclaimer that we always talk about, that we always whine about. Nobody knows anything, but as we sit right now, your best judgment for one team that blew it and one team that nailed it. I'll go with some obvious answers here, uh, and I think the Lincoln-Riley stuff is truly obvious. I think almost any program, I, I think there's the, the number of programs that this isn't true for is maybe like two one, three, it's a small number. If you could get Lincoln Riley at the end of last season, you would go fire your guy and get Lincoln Riley for almost yeah. anybody. So I, I think USC probably did the right thing. I'm very interested to see. I think some of the USC hype is now out of control. We went from, hey, this is a great hire, but it's going to take maybe maybe a year to like get everything on the level. USC is not where it was 15 or 17 years ago. It's going to take some time to build. And in six months of offseason talk, we went from that to some crazy USC storylines. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna give you a crazy USC stat a little bit later that's going to blow your mind. Uh, it just, the USC stuff is a little out of control. Colin Cowherd is doing, like, USC PR over the airwaves every day. It's very strange. I'm not sold that they're going to come in and be the number one team by the end of September in this fall, but I do think, I don't know how you, if, if hiring is about potential, you nailed that hire, right? I, and I, I don't I don't know how to say it other than that. It's about potential energy, and I think USC gets an A-plus there. Um, I, bad hire, this is a little harder to do off the cuff. Maybe Jim Mora, um, I, I don't. I mean, the UConn thing is impossible, right? And it's easy to pile on there. And they actually got into such a, a gravity well on this that it's like it, it's difficult to make a hire because nobody even wants that job. There's no long term. What even does long term success look like at UConn? It, it, it's impossible that they were in a Fiesta Bowl 10 years ago. I mean, it's just insane that that's true. It, so I... I I give them, I grade them with a grain of salt, but it, it feels like you just found a guy who was a name who was willing to took the, take the job, and it probably feels that way because that's what happened. So it's hard to, to slam them too hard for that, but I, I am very skeptical that Jim Mora will do anything markedly better than Randy Edsel did. I have no comments prepared on Jim Mora and UConn football. I think I agree with USC. I mean, they nailed it. U, USC is the boring answer. I mean, because I, I don't know. I agree with you. The hype is probably a little bit out of control. I mean, like USC's national championship odds, I think, are up to plus 2,000. That's tied for you know, fourth or fifth in college football. Uh, you can knock him for kind of the departure from Oklahoma and taking staff and potential tampering and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the actual hire, I don't know how you go from Clay Helton to Lincoln Riley and think they absolutely did not nail it. And because you get Caleb Williams out of it too. I mean, right, right, yeah, yeah. Because that's the boring answer. Because you already said that. I think Colorado State nailed it. I mean, talk about an upgrade, Steve Adazio to Jade Norvell. That might be the biggest upgrade in college football. The team that made a mistake. I have LSU. This is not a new opinion. I've been kind of whining about this for five, six months. I think Billy Napier was the guy there. I mean, he's was Lafayette an hour away, 90 minutes away. And I think it was Ross Dellinger who reported that LSU never actually approached or seriously considered Billy Napier. Even if he did, maybe Napier doesn't accept the job because he's looking for, he was looking for something very specific. I remember Brandon Marcello uh, of 24-7 Sports wrote a great article last summer about Napier with some ties to those SEC jobs. Remember, 
when it was the South Carolina job, the Mississippi State job, the Ole Miss job, Auburn too, that were open and Napier was rumored to be basically be a candidate everywhere. So maybe LSU just doesn't give him what he wants, but I think Brian Kelly wasn't that guy. It felt way too much like a, hey, we're LSU, we have a bunch of money, we're going to go steal Notre Dame's guy, look at us. It just doesn't feel the right fit. It has nothing to do with the fake accent, but I think that was that perfectly showcased why it's not a good fit. He's just not going to be a good fit down there in the bayou. Uh, I think it's going to flop on their face. Um, I will I will mildly push back and take up for the hire in that Brian Kelly has won pretty much everywhere he's been, and everywhere he has been has been a fundamentally flawed program. So like when he's winning at Cincinnati and he's winning at Notre Dame, he is playing with one hand tied behind his back. Cincinnati, when they were in the Big East, was a secondary factor that very few people cared about. They hadn't even been in that conference that long. And he turned them into, toward the tail end of of West Virginia leaving and everything, he turned them into probably the best program in that conference. He gets them into a new conference. He goes to Notre Dame, which is a very high academic institution. He is recruiting with one hand tied behind his back. Now he goes to LSU, where it's just you have more resources, you have better recruits available. And I'll say this. It's not a full-throated defense of him, but I'll say we are going to get the final grade on Brian Kelly as a coach at LSU. Because if, if, if all that's true about Cincinnati and Notre Dame, you don't have those excuses at LSU. You should be able to win at the highest level because of how you've won in other places. And if you can't do that, I think that's an indictment of, of who you are. And maybe maybe he doesn't deserve to be talked about that way as a coach, uh, like maybe his defenders would have at previous stops. What do you got? Uh, I, I want to talk about the, the Clemson run here for a second. So this this is, I think, the right time and a very interesting spot to ask. Is the Clemson run over, or is it going to enter a new phase? Because you've got some major staff turnover now. The the biggest, really, that we've seen in this Dabo run. They're going to have to replace Venables. And and odds-wise, they're in an interesting spot where they're minus 140 to win the ACC. They're 12-1 to to win the, the national championship this year. And that, that's kind of an interesting middle ground for them to live in. They're not a prohibitive favorite, and they're not back in the pack. And it, to me, it seems both of these numbers are, are sort of hedges against saying anything too definitive about Clemson. Uh, like, like I said, they're, they're not, you know, they're not 50 to one to win the title, and they're not a favorite. So anytime you have like a middle ground number like that, usually that means the numbers are soft somewhere else, whether it's above them or below them. So broad question, you can kind of take it anywhere you want, but do you think the Clemson run is over? And the follow to that is, depending on your answer, how would you bet around that, given that the numbers are soft somewhere almost by definition? I don't know. And I mentioned this to you before the show is that I'm, I'm trying to figure out because you said that Clemson was minus 140 to win the, the ACC, but their win total is at 10 and a half over and under both at minus 110. I'm trying to figure out what the book actually thinks about Clemson, because if you're putting them at 10 and a half at minus 110, if they go 11 and one 
And if they drop an out-of-conference game, their out-of-conference games are Furman, Louisiana Tech, uh, who else we got? South Carolina, and then I'm missing one. But if they drop a non-conference game, or even if they drop a conference game, I guess that's probably the right right conversation here. They're still going to win. They're still going to win the division. They're still probably going to win that conference, correct? So if they're putting I, I'm that, not, I'm not totally convinced of that. No, I don't. I don't think I sign on to that blindly. That they're definitely going to win that division. I'm saying if the if the over hits. Oh, if the over hits. Well, yeah, possible. Well, right. Yeah. That yeah. That's that's what I'm trying to read into what the book is doing with them. If they go 10 and 2 and they lose two conference games, we can have that discussion, but there doesn't seem to be anybody else in the ACC that is capable of only suffering one or two losses. And maybe the conversation does go to Wake Forest. Maybe it does go to Florida State. Maybe it does go to NC State. There I don't we go. know. That's where I am. Or maybe it goes to Miami. I, I have no idea, but I- I'm trying to figure out if the book long term I have no idea. I I, I just I don't know. I, mean, I don't, you're I don't about- think the book knows either, though. I think that's a fine answer from you because I think the book is saying they don't know either. And that's why they've put them here. They're, they're saying, hey, you decide, gambler. You decide whether you think this Clemson run or not is over. We're going to we're going to give you odds where you can go either way. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I'm sure when we get to the ACC preview, we'll have opinions on Clemson as a team in terms of long term and, and in terms of that they can. I think expecting them to return in 2022 to what they were before last year is really aggressive. I don't know if it's necessarily a staff turnover problem because last year they had Tony Elliott and their offense sucked. So I don't know if it's everything now because you go back three years, they've lost lost, lost Jeff Scott, they've lost Tony Elliott, and they've lost Brent Venables. It's the problem of every great program at a certain point. It's brain drain. You just you start to lose everything because everybody wants to copy you. Saban's got the same problem. But Saban doesn't really have a problem. Though. Well, he he faces the same problem. He has addressed it, I think, much better. And I think because of what Alabama has done and what Nick Saban have done about that, we've had this discussion before that because of how good and how dominant Alabama has been, it clouds expectations elsewhere in terms of contending for playoff spots annually. I think the same thing can be said for staff turnover and consistency. I have no idea. And I'm sure we'll get to Clemson's actual betting numbers and I have another question for you that ties into that a little bit later on. But I think there's a betting discussion to be had about Clemson in terms of long term. I have no idea. I bet Clemson's beat writers can't even tell you what's going to happen with Clemson football long term. Mm. Is is that a uh, is that a tease for uh, do we want to get some Clemson beat writers on later in the summer? (laughs) No. We said, what did we say last year that we had Clemson uh, overkill and we were done talking about them for the final 10 weeks of the season? But can they turn it around at four and five? <laughs> Thursday, this podcast is going up game one of the NBA finals tonight and wouldn't be the Lions Edge without a little bit of a side street show to talk about what to do with the NBA finals. I've got a little bit of a game one lean. I've got a little bit of a series lean. But more than that, I just want to pop on briefly to add to the NBA conversation and say this. The Warriors line remains overpriced. BetMGM is leveraged. Every sports book, really, is leveraged on the Warriors side. They've taken a lot of action. Those tickets, those futures are still live. Massive odds at the beginning of the year for Golden State to win. Even in late April, I was writing about this earlier in the week, they were plus 250 to win the title. Lots of tickets there as well. 
the price is pretty explicitly, pretty transparently priced badly for Golden State. The book wants you to take the Celtics and even out their liabilities. So going into this series, if you haven't taken a position yet, you're trying to figure out what you want to do. From an economic standpoint, it's Celtics or pass because the Warriors price is intentionally bad here. It is pure bookmaking, cover your liabilities math. Now, should you actually take the Celtics? Can they win? That's another conversation. But I think the answer is yes. I do think the Celtics can win here. I think the Warriors have looked apathetic. I think they haven't been challenged nearly as much as the Celtics have. I think they look disinterested in playing for long stretches of time. That core is old. The younger guys are unproven and kind of streaky, a little inconsistent. Uh, I would not necessarily be looking too hard at NBA Finals MVPs. I think that market is super weird this year. Uh, I guess I'd take Curry over anybody else. But if you're looking... At Celtics plus 130 on the series, I think that's a bet worth making. And I think Celtics plus three and a half Thursday night in game one is is worth playing as well. Uh, I, I would I think I if I was gonna play it, I would just take the money line Celtics to win outright. The Celtics had four days off here. That's the biggest break they've had in like a month. They played back-to-back seven-game series. They played 14 games basically in 28 or 30 days. Uh, so the Warriors have been off for a week, maybe a little bit more. I, I can't remember exactly when that Dallas Game 5 closeout was. But I just, I wouldn't be surprised if the Warriors come into Thursday night's Game 1 a little lethargic because that's how they look for a lot of this series. The Celtics had four days of rest, the most rest they've had in a long time. I think they'll look fresh. I think they'll look more motivated. I think they're the better defensive team or at least the more consistent defensive team. This is a Celtic spot for me if you want to bet it. I'm going to stay away, but in terms of betting game one and betting on the series, a lot of these spots, it's Celtics or pass. Question number three for this college football reset. Let's do some betting. I alluded to this, that BetMGM uh, has conference winner odds up each Power 5 conference. In the SEC, is Alabama at minus 125 to win the SEC? Is that the best value play among favorites in the P5 conferences. So as of right now, the favorite in each P5 conference, Alabama minus 125, USC plus 200 to win the Pac-12, Oklahoma plus 175 to win the Big 12, Ohio State minus 250 to win the Big 10, Clemson minus 140 to win the ACC. Of those favorites, is Alabama the smartest play? I think so. Um, and I, I've got a, I've got a sort of a question to flip this around for you in a minute, but I think the answer to your question is yes, it's Alabama because I think um, I think the USC stuff is is kind of sucked the Pac-12 market up. I think the Big 12 is uh, is kind of wide open this year. I have no idea what's going to happen there. I'm not sold on Clemson at all. The Big 10 probably Ohio State's this year, but if I'm if I'm taking what feels like a surefire thing, it's Alabama at, at you know four to five odds. Pretty close to even, reasonably speaking, and I don't, I don't think I see anybody coming for them. I know the the Jimbo stuff, and the, we we haven't even gotten to talk about all the crazy Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban stuff that happened while you were kind of off on a little vacation and and, and moving back and forth, and, and I've had my stuff going on, so we haven't even gotten to talk about that necessarily. It's it's gossipy and, and the, you know, the real housewives of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but it's not necessarily a compelling 
betting strategy, I don't think. Like I, I don't I don't see Texas A&M challenging them really. And that game is is early on. It's like the first week of October. I don't think A&M can can put the pieces together fast enough this year to be competitive in that game and and beat Alabama on their home field. Not convinced. I mean, for Alabama, that's a revenge spot from last year and a revenge coaching spot for Saban, I guess, if you want to call it that. I, I, you know, the, the Iron Bowl is always a potential loss spot for Alabama. But beyond that, who's supposed to beat them? I don't see necessarily a team in the SEC West that's going to touch them this year. They're losing a lot. They lose a lot every year. They'll reload with the recruits they've brought in. They still have Bryce Young. Uh, so I think Alabama at minus 125 is a pretty strong bet to win the SEC. And then you can kind of figure out if you want to do more with that in the in the actual championship market. Completely agree. Nothing to add to that. What is your question that you want to flip around for this? So I, I guess just to widen it out to all of the Alabama futures that are possible, Bryce Young is plus 350 to win the Heisman right now. Uh, so that would obviously be a repeat, which is... Not very common, let's say. Uh, Alabama minus 125 to win the SEC. They're plus 200 to win the title. Obviously, we just talked about the SEC part of that. Do either of those other numbers really interest you in terms of where you want to put money down on Alabama here in the preseason? The only one, and I don't even need to get into the Heisman stuff because it's, I mean, the Heisman moment thing drives me crazy. How people vote for the Heisman drives me crazy. A lot of them vote before the season is over. So I, I've never touched a Heisman future before. I think there's just too many things that we can't predict from a handicapping standpoint at play. Um, that being said, I do like Alabama at the plus 200 to win the national championship. I feel really good about Alabama winning the SEC. And if you're winning the SEC, you're two games win, away from the win the national championship. So because I think that's going to happen, and if Alabama is in the playoff, they're sure as shit not going to be plus 200 to win the national championship. So I'm going to take that number now and not wait until they make the playoff. And maybe they do enter the playoff, not as a favor. Maybe, maybe somebody does pop up. Maybe Ohio state is the elite number one team in college football. And it's going to be really hard to see them losing the playoff. I have no idea, but if you're still going to give me Alabama plus 200 right now, and I really think they're going to win the SEC, I'm going to take that number because going to the playoff, Alabama is not going to be plus 200 to win the national championship. Yeah, and there is quite a bit of precedent that we have on Alabama losing the national championship game and then coming back and winning it the next year. Uh, 2017, they, they lose to Clemson. They come back and go to 2018. And then, of course, uh, 2019, they lose that game to Clemson. They come back the next year. And I think, right? I think this has happened twice. I know it's happened once. I'm pretty sure it's happened twice. Um, now I'm doing all of this off the top of my head. But do you want me to... Save you here? Yeah, go ahead. If you have it, do you want to, please save me. Well, well, I was wondering if you want to stay on this or do you want to want to move on now? Uh, yeah, let's just go. Staying in national championship odds, though, where are you drawing the line? Because as of today, you mentioned Alabama plus 200, Georgia plus 275, Ohio State plus 450. You get a massive drop-off then to Clemson at plus 1,200. Texas A&M plus 2,000, USC plus 2,000. We go back to the Utah thing. I think that was from 2019. People calling Utah a dark horse to win the national championship. When even though we agreed that they had a really great shot to win the Pac-12. <laughs> this is... 
that was the line somewhere above Utah where, yeah, Utah could have gotten into the playoff, which they almost did, and that was the Oregon game, but Utah was not winning the national championship that year. So where are you drawing the line this year? Are you drawing it after Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State? Are you drawing it somewhere a little bit farther down the line? Where do you think we draw the line for teams that can actually win the national championship? Oh, man. Um, I might have to take a pass on that one just because I feel like I don't know. And I, I I don't know off the top of my head. It It feels like a two-horse race right now with Ohio State, Alabama. But that's never, it's almost never the case, right? That right. that week zero, we can narrow it to two. So it, it feels to me like more of a lack of information at this point that I need to, to dive more into because I, I can't, I can't imagine that it would be that tight this early on. And I'm, I'm sure I'm going to uncover some numbers about like, oh, actually... Look at look at this, you know, marginal top 20, top 15 team that actually brings a lot back this year. Like, should they be considered? So I think I'd take a pass on that for now because I just can't answer it. And maybe the more intriguing question, the follow up question is not necessarily you drawing the line, but looking at these national championship odds, you might draw the line higher. So let's say that you are drawing the line after Ohio State, and even though you're not super high on Georgia, let's say you're drawing the line there. You think it's Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. But if you're going to give me – I mean, LSU is not winning the national championship. I mean, if I'm taking the under on Georgia's win total, I don't think they're in the national championship conversation. Okay. You know? So maybe the more intriguing question is, though, even though if you drew the line at Alabama, Ohio State – do you think throwing a little bit on an LSU at plus 6,600 is interesting or Florida at 6,600? Because you know, one of those P5 teams that has the talent is going to pop up and make the playoff, probably. Whether or not they can win the national championship, highly unlikely. But you know that one of these teams, I, I don't know who it is. Kentucky? Penn's, God, I want to see them pop up. Do you see my point, though? Like, one of these teams is going to do. Not exactly what LSU did a couple of years yes, ago, but they're going to be like, they're around gonna be and that, they're going to be a but, factor. And I, I think, right. I think that's that is what I'm saying. I'm just saying I don't know who it is yet because I haven't gotten into the rosters and I haven't I haven't looked at schedules and we haven't really done any of that yet. So what did you, what did you uh, you nicknamed this in our uh, in our Microsoft Teams conversation a couple days ago? You nicknamed this podcast the "Don't Ask Me About the Depth Charts Yet" episode. I think that's where yeah. I'm at right now. With don't this get question. yeah, don't get depth charty on me. I'm, I'm not. Don't there get yet. depth charty on me. Yeah. All right. What do you got for number four? Uh, Big Twelve conversation. Love it. I was looking at the returning production for the Big Twelve teams about a week ago. Half of the conference is in the lower third of all of FBS Division One college football. Kansas State ranks ninety fifth. In returning production, Oklahoma State 107, Baylor 122, West Virginia 127, Iowa State 128. Basically, at that point, the only people after you are like Hawaii, and they have a completely unique situation in terms of the exodus of talent out of that program. So it's it's an interesting Big 12, I think, that we're going to get this year. Um, I came into this conversation wanting to look at Oklahoma and say Oklahoma has been great the last five or six years because Lincoln Riley is a singular offensive talent and at Oklahoma is going to take 
a commensurate step back this year because as, as great as Venables is, he is not Lincoln Riley. He's not that level of offensive talent. They're going to take a step back. Texas, kind of, you know, we joke about Texas to begin with. Weren't really a factor last year in the Big 12 championship, ultimately. Uh, not sure with Sarkeesian, like, they're, they're going to be there right away. Like, th- these are the things that I came in thinking. But I look at all of the Big 12 teams that are losing a whole lot this year. They they aren't necessarily Clemson or Alabama with the ability to just reload immediately with an awesome recruiting class. So my question here for you in, in terms of the Big 12 is, which idea do you buy into more? That because so much of the conference is taking a big step back, Oklahoma and Texas will remain at the top this year or toward the top because the recruits they bring in will give them an advantage over all these other programs that lost a lot? Or do you think this opens the door for a program like TCU, 10 to 1 to win the Big 12 this year, who is by far the program that comes back with the most talent from last year, their top 10, I I believe, in terms of returning production in all of college football. Do they have a window? Is this the year of the Horned Frogs after they move on from Gary Patterson? Which of those would you be more likely to buy? I'm buying the Oklahoma stuff because a lot of this comes down to us not knowing how teams are reacting to coaching changes and us not knowing how to quantify. I mean, we we talk about coaching changes all the time, in-season coaching changes too, when I've asked this question a million times for your handicapping, when a coach is fired, how do you do that the next week? And it's always a case-by-case answer for you. I don't know if players are going to take to like Sonny Dykes at TCU. He had the great first season at SMU, especially for me with my expectations for SMU in that first season under Dykes, and I didn't even love that hire at SMU. My expectations were so low, and he had a great season. I, I don't know if, like, Joey McGuire is is going to do something at Texas Tech because that program was so dysfunctional under Matt Wells, and Cliff Kingsbury can only figure out half of that team being offensive defense. So I don't, I don't know how to quantify that kind of stuff. Because you know that one of those teams is going to have a sensational season that generally most people didn't see coming because somebody has to win games there unless it is just Oklahoma and then Iowa State somehow makes up God, we, we're going to talk a lot about Iowa State this year because that's a fascinating discussion uh, on their expectations moving forward and returning productions and all that kind of stuff but one of these teams that we don't know about that we generally have low expectations for namely Texas Tech namely TCU somebody has to win games there so I don't. It's, I think the answer is whoever works the portal the best, which is obviously another maybe. massive variable that none of us know how to quantify. Is hey, you've got if you're West Virginia and you had a massive portal exodus and you lost a ton of guys, but then you brought in some more guys. Like nobody except for the dudes in that locker room and the coaches on that staff have any idea what that team's going to look like this year. I mean, it's it's like a Frankenstein monster of missing pieces and pieces coming back in. Maybe it turns out great. Maybe it's a disaster. Maybe Neil Brown gets fired. None of us have any idea. Is there a top? Is there an argument for every team not named Kansas to finish in the top three of the Big Twelve this year? I think there's an argument for Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> Just give you a little cap right there. 
Speaking of returning production, they have like 80%. I know, that's what I'm saying. They bring back a lot. The rest of the conference loses a lot. I know you like your new guy there. Um, <clears throat> can, can I give you the one corollary to this? I'm, I'm curious. How do you factor in Gary Patterson as a special, a special assistant at Texas? What do you do with that? How much of this an impact ser- does it make at all? This is a serious question. Yes. None. <laughs> Boy, that and the Big 12 Sunbelt question. Speaking of Sunbelt, question number five. I'm going to regret this. I ask you to contain yourself. Because as I told you on Tuesday for this episode, we just referenced this. We're not getting depth charty today. Will James Madison be a top half team in the FBS this season? Ballpark top half team and your team's inclusion ruined the top half. We no longer have an even split 65, 65. So ballpark top half team. Will James Madison be there? And I know they can't get bowl eligibility. Meaning but I like, guess that, what are we talking about? Like Sagarin rankings? Will they hit 60, 65? Well, just, just a ballpark. You look at that team and I, say, yeah, I think they're a top half. Team. I think, yes, I think, yes, I think, the bottom of the Sun Belt, the wins are there. I think my worry is, are they, like, how how much steam did they lose between December 31st and August 31st? Because I, I, I don't expect that people are, like, locked into what's going on in Harrisonburg right now, but it's just, it's been kind of a steady trickle of guys kind of exiting stage left. Uh, we just lost probably our, our best linebacker actually went to play for Texas, um, and he he left like late. Like there are some late guys going out the door, like in May, still hitting the portal. So, how much did you know? We had a great defensive coordinator who just left uh, to join the staff at Rutgers. How much does all the FBS attrition? It, it felt to me, not reporting this, don't have inside info on this. It felt to me like they kept a lot of the staff and players around by saying. Look, just get us to FBS. It's around the corner, and then do whatever you want. And uh, there, there have been coaches that have left. There have been a lot of players that have left. And and how much of what remains is going to be good? What we bring in from the portal, who the quarterback ends up being? Because I mean, it's like open competition. We've got random true freshman recruits. We're taking transfers from Colorado State. It's just kind of all over the place. And I don't know what the final product is going to be. If you took the team that we had last year, that's a top half FBS team for sure. That's a top 50 FBS team. Add in another 20 scholarships. I'm also looking at the schedule. So if you take last year's team and you you put them into the schedule. Yes, that's a top half team. They're probably winning. They're seven and five, eight and four, I think. Oh, easy. Yeah. I think they could go nine and I mean, you look at all I mean, Nor- Norfolk State is an auto win. You're gonna beat Texas State. You're probably gonna beat Middle Tennessee at home with that team. You're probably oh, gonna win Georgia, Georgia Southern. You're I mean the the only you're gonna compete against Louisville. Like there isn't an auto loss on this schedule with that team. That's kinda why I asked you about it, because I'm not plugged into what they have returned and what yeah, they have lost. I think I think with all the losses, and I know that they're I I, I appreciate this question. Normally, I don't love to get like super into my own personal teams on the pod, but I do think there's a lot of interest in like what JMU does in their first year because they've been so really high level elite at the FCS level. And now they come into full FBS schedule right away, which is really, I mean, basically unprecedented. 
Uh, it's it's going to be interesting. I think they can go six and six, seven and five. Uh, but I think it's going to be a little more janky than I originally thought. Uh, and uh, I mean, maybe some of the transfers work out and it's all fine. They go eight and four. But we'll see. It'll be a really interesting year. Really, really interesting What's their, experiment. I mentioned that BetMGM doesn't have G5 win totals up. When they post that, is JMU going to be five and a half? I would think so. That would be my guess. That That's probably about where I would set it. I wouldn't be surprised if... I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the public appetite is for betting on a, a team like JMU because maybe maybe a lot of people think, hey, they're going to come in and be good right away and then you got to set it at six and a half. So I don't know. What is your last question? If you look at the Heisman odds right now, top six, everybody that's 25 to one or better, there's 16 guys right now, 25 to one or better. Four of them are USC quarterbacks. <laughs> One quarter of the market is USC quarterbacks, all right? So obviously, Caleb Williams is there at the top. I think he's 8-1. to one. And then we've got the exodus of the other guys. Jackson Dart, now at Ole Miss. He's 25-1. to one. Keaton Slovis, he's now at Pitt. He's 25-1. to one. JT Daniels, your boy, playing for the Mountaineers now, 25-1. to one. So... That means two of those guys are going to play each other week one in a game I'm sure will be a highly, highly, highly watched game. First backyard brawl in several years. JT Daniels versus Keaton Slovis week one. Both of them 25 to one to win the Heisman. Whoever wins that game, you have to imagine, is going to get a nice bump because they won a high profile game in week one against another like B-level contender. So if you want to buy one of those two guys, and I'm not sure that I do, but if you do, you probably want to take a shot beforehand because the odds are going to change. Who are you buying in the USC Heisman quarterback raffle? Jackson Dart, Keaton Slovis, JT Daniels, or Caleb Williams factoring in that it is a much lesser payout? If I have to play a high... I mean, you lose your mind when I shove you into a corner with Betty Mark and say you have to take somebody. If I have to take somebody, I'm taking Caleb Williams. There, There's just, even though he's only played whatever it was, seven games or something last year, I know what I'm getting. And even though the USC expectations, I guess that's the bigger question here because you're not going to win the high. I did a huge breakdown a few years ago on how good teams are for the, how, how can you support a Heisman winner? And basically, if, if you're not going 10 and 2, 11 and 1, you're, you're just not going to do it. I mean, Lamar Jackson was the major exception. I think Louisville went 9 and 3. I don't know which of these teams can support a Heisman winner, but if I put everything together, I know what I'm getting out of Caleb Williams. I do think that even though the USC hype is overdone, if they go 10 and 2, that's going to be considered a good season for them. They're going to be in that mix for a playoff spot because they have a good chance to win the, the Pac-12. I'm taking Caleb Williams at plus 800. JT Daniels has just not played football. Like He, he hasn't played meaningful football in forever. And even going back to USC, he didn't even play that much there. So if I'm paying 25, I'd rather go down the board and take some, take some lottery tickets. I mean, Cam Rising at 6,600? Give me him and Utah to win the Pac-12 11 and 1 and make the playoff over JT Daniels at tw- at 2500. You're saying you can see him rising through the ranks? Get it? You get it? Like a little rising joke. 
are we done? Are they? Are we? Are we? We wrap it now. Anything else? I I did a a short thing last summer about how like if you're looking down the board historically, twenty five to one has been the sweet spot. Like in, in that range, twenty to one, thirty to one, maybe up to fifty to one, but really twenty to thirty. Uh, that's kind of the sweet spot for for value in terms of finding Heisman guys. Oftentimes, it is not the favorite or one of the few favorites coming into a Heisman season that actually wins the Heisman. It's rare. It does happen. Baker Mayfield was an example. Um, But it's kind of rare. That said, I think I'm with you on the Caleb Williams thing. I I don't, I I would be shocked if a West Virginia quarterback, especially in this year, this situation, uh, won it. I, I don't know that Keaton Slovis has sort of the talent necessarily. I would say the same about Jackson Dart. Uh, so I, I would say Caleb Williams is, is probably your guy if you're uh, if you're forcing an answer in there. I'm probably taking Spencer Rattler over Slovis or oh, I'm not doing that. JT Daniels. I'm not doing that. I bet I could find 20 guys on this list I'm taking before your boy JT Daniels. You know, after like three years that felt like 30 years of not really having a quarterback in Morgantown, I'm just happy to have a guy I, I know at least knows how to throw the ball. And a coordinator, coordinator he's familiar with, a coordinator that I love, a coordinator that I cannot believe has not gotten or accepted because I assume he's been offered something in FBS head coaching job yet. Indeed. So, I believe you're out next week, correct? Well, we don't really TBD. know yet. TBD <laughs> is, is the uh, is the answer there. We don't need to get into, uh, into into personal details, but let's just say there's a there's a hole in my body right now that needs to needs to not be there anymore. So. That might impact the vacay plans. So we may take a pause. Uh, may not. We'll jump into some NFL previews probably first uh, here in a couple of weeks, perhaps uh, division by division. Tons of NFL bar- betting markets available, so it probably makes sense to jump into those first. Although with these college football win totals, I really want to get into some conference previews. So we'll see how that goes. Probably do NFL previews first. Ping us on Twitter if you want to chat about a certain market or a division first. At the Lion's Edge on Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Lion's Edge presented by BetMGM.